It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Is there some kind of rule among liberal Hollywood celebrities that they have to act at times like complete and total a-holes toward about half the country? I'm talking about the people who aren't the cool kids, who don't live in the cool cities, who are more conservative, maybe live in rural areas, because this happens again and again and again and again. I guess, you know, you're wealthy and you're famous and your fans love you and you live in this kind of bubble. Uh, and so you feel free, you know, if you're going to put something on Twitter, or, you know, all of your like-minded pals are going to say, yeah, right on, you tell them. Uh, the reason I'm a little bit exercised, I like to kind of ease into the podcast, but right now I'm kind of ticked off, is Bette Midler. Now, Bette Midler has been around a long time. Very successful career, very talented. I assume she's no dummy. But she, like a lot of Democrats, by the way, is pissed off at Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin, you know, going on Fox News Sunday saying, I'm done, I'm a no, blowing up Biden's bill back better bill. That was a lot of alliteration. So, you know, it's fine to criticize the senator. It's fine to say that we need this legislation. It's fine to do just about anything, except what Bette Midler actually did. And here it is. What Joe Manchin who represents a population smaller than Brooklyn. Well, it's true. A couple million people live in West Virginia. That's, it's still a state, you know? It's still one of the 50 states. Has done to the rest of America, who, I guess she means which, wants to move forward, not backward like his state, is horrible. So now you know we're getting down in the dirt. He sold us out. Uh, What obligation did Joe Manchin have to Bette Midler? He wants us all to be just like his state, West Virginia. Poor, illiterate, and strung out. Okay? The entire state is just impoverished. Uh, It's a bunch of drug addicts. And people who are so poorly educated, they can barely read, if they can read at all. Every stereotype that you might trot out for rural America, there it is. You know, his state is horrible. Manchin wants to make every other state horrible. We're talking here about whether or not the Democrats get to spend another couple of trillion dollars after spending about $3 trillion on the previous Biden bill. And remember, it was supposed to be three and a half. So I just, like, how many fans do you think Bette Midler has today in the state of West Virginia? Why go there? You could make the same points without, you know, coming off as an elitist, smart ass who wouldn't be caught dead in Charleston, West Virginia, because she's too cool and would only go to places like Santa Monica or Berkeley or Manhattan, but only certain Manhattan neighbors. Anyway, I I just, most of these times, most of the time I let these things go, but this really kind of got to me. All right. I want to talk about President Biden's speech about COVID yesterday. Um, I mentioned on on yesterday's podcast uh, that we knew this was coming. We knew the substance of what he was going to say because it had all been leaked by White House aides to the press so that the morning papers would take the first crack at, you know, he's going to send a thousand medical military people to hospitals to help out and he's going to order these 500 million tests and so forth. So the president gives a speech, one of his afternoon speeches, and I think we can agree at this point that he's not a great orator. It just sounded like every other speech 
he's given. And they're mostly, you know, there's a lot of stuff that he had said before. You know, he started off by saying, look, I know many of you are are frustrated and tired of this, and so am I. Okay, you know, I mean, one of the good things about Biden is he can relate to average working people, you know, Joe from Scranton. And then he proceeds to talk about the unvaccinated, they need to get vaccinated, and so on and so forth. The only time he really showed some passion was when he was talking about how hard it is for some people to make ends meet. And really what he was talking about there is the Build Back Better bill, because he feels like this will provide money that will help uh, particularly uh, lower-income families, particularly lower-income families with kids. One of the um, key provisions that Manchin particularly objected to is the child tax credit. Now, we can argue about that all day long. But, you know, there's no question that Biden brings great passion when he feels like he's in a position to help the downtrodden. But for the rest of it, it was simply, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to get through it together and, you know, you have an obligation. I mean, you know, it's not that I disagree with these sentiments. You have an obligation to get vaccinated, protect not just yourself, your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, and it's the patriotic thing to do. Uh, unfortunately, he coughed a few times, so what? You know, I mean, he's obviously had a cold for several months. And he's 79 years old, and he is not in the Reagan or Clinton or Obama class of speechifiers. Maybe that's why they do it in the afternoon. But then, after that, he took a couple of questions, three to be precise. He didn't answer the third one. The third one was about, um, did you, essentially, do you feel betrayed by Joe Manchin? He said, Senator Manchin and I are going to work together, and he walked off. We'll come back to that. The first question from one of the White House press corps members was, Mr. President, on testing, sir, you said we have to do better. But public health officials have been saying for months you need to surge rapid testing for just this moment. Is it a failure, the reporter asked, that you don't have an adequate amount of tests for everyone to be able to get one if they need one right now, because the news has been showing long, long lines. Suddenly, with Omicron, people want to be tested. There aren't, you know, the pharmacies are sold out. It's hard to get appointments. In fact, here in the Washington area, you can't get an appointment within 250 miles. Here's what the president said: No, it's not, not a failure, because COVID is spreading so rapidly. If you notice, it just, it just almost happened overnight, just in the last month. And the reporter tried to interrupt. What's your message? I'm going to answer his question. I guess someone else interrupted. So, no, it's not a failure, but the alarm bell went off. I don't think anybody anticipated that this was going to be rapidly spreading as it did. As rapidly spreading as it did. And so the question is, we had a lot of people, says the president, who had have access to a test, who could order them, could have their insurance pay for them, etc. But it all started. All of a sudden, it was like everybody rushed to the counter. There was a big, big rush. And I knew that was coming, so what I tried to do is meet with the companies and use the Defense Production Act to get half a billion more tests and figure out how to get them into their homes, get them on the shelves in the store. Okay, I'll come back to what I think about that. Second question from a member of the White House Press Corps. Mr. President, what's your message to Americans who are trying to get tested now and who are not able to get tested and who are wondering what took so long to ramp up testing? And he got a little indignant. Come on, what took so long? And the reporter says, that's what I'm hearing from. I'm hearing that from people who are trying to get tested now before the holidays. President, 
Well, what took so long is uh, it didn't take long at all. What happened was the Omicron virus spread even more rapidly than anybody thought. He just kind of repeated his earlier answer. Now, I flip around after these presidential appearances to see what people are saying on the different channels. So on MSNBC, you know, they've got like four guests in the boxes. And the reporter says, well, you know, this is the White House message. Here's what the president was trying to do. And then they go to the medical expert, medical analyst. And she, to her credit, sorry that I don't remember her name, might be Natalie Azar, but don't hold me to that, said, well, I have to differ with the president. He says, uh, who could have predicted this? Everybody was predicting it. Everybody's been saying for months that we have to ramp up this testing for just this kind of time. And if you wait until the latest wave in the pandemic is upon us, then it's too late. So even on MSNBC, the channel that's most friendly to Joe Biden, they weren't buying it. The reporters clearly weren't buying it. And I have to say, although I, I don't blame President Biden for the fact that it's now 39 or 40% of the country still refuses to get vaccinated. They've tried just about everything. People don't want to do it. It became politicized. Um, they tried to make it easy. A lot of states and cities gave away, remember, free beer, free pot, free sports tickets, whatever, free lottery tickets. But on the testing thing, this should have been done a year ago. We Even if you, you say, well, why would we spend all that money for tests if there's not that demand? Because the pandemic wasn't over. There were obviously going to be waves. Yes, we didn't know specifically there would be an Omicron variant that began in South Africa. But this was, is a failure on the part of the administration. And I'm sorry, Biden didn't really have an answer. Well, nobody could have predicted. Yeah, this has been talked about for months and months and months. It is true that this thing has spread faster than anybody could have imagined. But so what? If it hadn't been that, it would have been something else. And even with these 500 million tests he's ordering and they're going to be free and all, that's great. But they're not going to be ready till January. And so now you've got all these people getting ready to get on planes, trains, and automobiles and visit their relatives around the country. And I'm not saying they shouldn't. It's Christmas time and New Year's and they're going to celebrate and have a good time. But they don't, they'll come back. First of all, they're going and they, don't, and they can't get tested and they don't know if they're having, even those who are vaccinated are having asymptomatic coronavirus. And when they come back, they won't know if they somehow caught unless they get the symptoms. So this one is on Biden. Now, there was a couple of things that the president said that I thought was good, and they both had to do with Donald Trump. One, he said, thanks to the prior administration, you know, we got these vaccines quickly and we have enough vaccines. And that's true. And he didn't utter his name, but he did thank Donald Trump. The second time, he said, the former president, and this is a reference to when I talked about yesterday, you undoubtedly heard about it when Trump was out with Bill O'Reilly in Dallas. O'Reilly says, I just got the booster. Did you? Trump says, yes. And some of the crowd starts to boo. And so uh, Biden says, you know, because in, in his vaccine pitch, he's saying, go out and get the booster if it's been more than six months. He says, the former president announced that he's gotten the booster. One of the few things we agree on. But OK, he was willing to bring Trump into the conversation uh, both as a guy who, you know, pushed Operation Warp Speed through a lot of bureaucratic obstacles, and as somebody who just got a booster. I mean, Biden would be crazy not to use that. A lot of the people who don't want to get vaccinated are Trump fans. Even if some of them are willing to boo their guy, the former guy, when he says he got a booster. How is that a bad thing? All right, so this is going to go on, and it's going to go on in many different ways. I look at the numbers, and boy, you know, 
it, the the average number of new daily cases had been a, about a hundred thousand. Then it was kind of leveling off one hundred twenty thousand. Now I'm seeing over one hundred forty thousand. Fortunately for now, the number of average deaths from COVID nineteen has held steady. It had been about a thousand a day. Now it's about twelve thirteen hundred a day. But you know that's a lagging indicator. And you know the number of cases is going to skyrocket now. I mean, you all, you know, New York City, it seems to be breaking a new record every single day. And we have all the shutdowns that we talked about yesterday, National Hockey League, uh, some colleges going virtual, some public school systems going virtual. Um, and testing is such a key component. Um, so it's going to be a rough few weeks, couple of months. I don't know. Then the question is, how long does this last? All right, let me come back to the Build Back Better thing. Um because now, of course, everybody's vented and they have to make nice. Well, we're going to try again in the new year. But after the White House put out that blistering statement, after believing that Manchin essentially had blindsided the president and his team by telling Brett Baer on Fox on Sunday uh, that he was a no, that he's done, that he's done everything humanly possible. You know, I mean, Jen Psaki, with Biden's approval, put out this, you know, this was inexplicable and we had been led to believe we were close and so forth and so on. You know, I wasn't in the room. I don't know. So Manchin, of course, has to punch back. So he says in an interview with a guy who's a kind of a legend in West Virginia, radio guy, Hoppy Kercheval, um, he said, look, it's been obvious for months that I wasn't able to support this bill. They just never realize it, says the senator, because they figure, surely to God, we can move one person. Surely we can badger and beat one person up, he said. Well, guess what? I'm from West Virginia. I'm not from where they're from, uh, where they can just beat the living crap out of people and think they'll be submissive. In other words, he's saying, I believe what I believe. I'm an elected United States senator. And since you happen to need my 50th vote, you had to figure out a way to change the package in a way that would get me on board. And they never were able to do that. Now, of course, you know, of course, this gives them even more leverage. But if Biden and Democrats want to salvage something. So now I was hearing that, Biden, that Manchin went to the White House and absolutely positively did not want the child tax credit and was quoted in a couple of stories as privately telling colleagues that, well, some of these families, they'll just spend it on drugs, which is, I think, pretty insulting stereotype. But let's move beyond that. Um, he got a lot of things cut from the climate change portion of the bill, uh, but looked like they were going to be able to come to some kind of deal on that. He was willing to expand the Affordable Care Act. He was willing to do pre-kindergarten for 10 years. There was a lot of things he was for. Why couldn't they make a deal? You know, Manchin, you know, maybe he was never going to get to yes. Now he seems to be saying, well, if you rewrite the whole thing, maybe I'll vote for it. Not even committing to it. But why couldn't Joe Biden figure, you know what? I can't get everything I want. I got to tell the progressives, particularly the squad and the House liberals, that I can't, you know, I can't do it. Can't deliver the wish list because we only have this razor-thin margin in the Senate. So we're going to take this, and we're going to take this, and we're going to take this, and we're going to declare victory. That was a huge mistake. Whether that ultimately happens, we'll have to wait and see. Hey, a couple other things I want to get to here on the podcast. Um, Sex in the City, you may know, uh, just had this reboot. Uh, I mentioned it briefly. You know, three of the four original cast members uh, came back. Uh, it's online. I think it's HBO Max. 
And in my personal opinion, this somebody kind of liked the old show. It's pretty awful. But that's not the point. The point is Mr. Big. So anybody who's watched this show knows that in the old days, Mr. Big was one of the men who Sarah Jessica Parker, playing Carrie Bradshaw, was in and out of involvement with, in an on and off relationship, you might say. Played by the actor Chris Noth. And in this reboot, Chris Noth comes back as Mr. Big. They still call him Mr. Big for some reason. And he obviously lives with Sarah Jessica Parker. And they're having this sort of domestic life. All right, then he has a bit of an accident that I won't spoil it for people still want to watch. But then you have these women coming forward because of the reboot. If the reboot hadn't taken place, who would be thinking about Chris Noth? So two women go to the Hollywood Reporter. They're anonymous. They're using synonyms. And separately, they say, Chris Noth sexually assaulted me. One of them said it happened in New York in 2015, the other one in L.A. in 2004. Then a third woman has since told the Daily Beast, again anonymously, that in, back in 2010, Noth groped her and assaulted her um, when she was 18 years old in Manhattan restaurant. In each case, uh, Noth has said, this is categorically false. On the first two, he said these were consensual relationships. Why are they coming forward now? On the third one, he just issued a denial to his spokesman. So the new thing here is that the three women, remember Kim Cattrall didn't come back because she hates Sarah Jessica Parker and vice versa. That's another story. So Sarah Jessica Parker, Kristen Davis, and Cynthia Nixon, who ran for governor of New York, uh, or tried to get the nomination from Andrew Cuomo, uh, they came out with a statement. And you think they might, you know, might be difficult for them because this is an actor they worked with for a long time. We are deeply saddened to hear the allegations against Chris Noth. We support the women who have come forward and shared their painful experiences. They said in this statement, we know it must be a very difficult thing to do and we commend them for it. Now, Chris Noth has since lost, uh, he's been booted out of a CBS series that he is a part of. And also, uh, he's lost an advertising deal. And he has some kind of liquor company that was going to be bought in a $12 million deal that he at least has a stake in. That seems to be off too. So a lot of people now acting like he's radioactive despite his denials. And here, the women of Sex in the City obviously distancing themselves over these allegations. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Hey, a really interesting question about journalistic ethics in a piece by Paul Farr in the Washington Post. And it involves Tom Friedman. Now, I have known Tom Friedman, uh, the New York Times columnist, for a very long time. I've interviewed him many times. And I've admired his work. I mean, his books on the Middle East are fabulous. He's won three Pulitzer Prizes. He has a grasp of that region and a pretty good grasp of foreign policy generally that's way above most working journalists and certainly newspaper journalists. Uh, you know, and he also writes about global economy and tech and he hobnobs in all those circles. Uh, but now the question has come up whether Tom Friedman has a conflict of interest. And the conflict of interest, often what the, the, the run-of-the-mill conflict for a lot of people in the news biz is that um, either they own some stock in a company that they're writing or talking about, or they got paid to deliver a speech and then they're writing or talking about that company. In other words, they got some benefit. In Friedman's case, it's about him giving money. So the top of the story is about 
how many times Tom Friedman in his New York Times column has favorably cited the Conservation International Environmental Group. He's quoted its executives, its employees, its board members on all kinds of topics. What he hasn't told his readers is that his family, he has a family foundation, uh, his wife is the heir to a major shopping center development, and obviously Friedman's done pretty well for himself too. His family foundation has given $5.9 million to Conservation International, uh, and recently as 2015, uh, over a million. So as the Post story puts it, these co uh, contributions raise somewhat a novel ethical question. Should a journalist, particularly one as distinguished and influential as Friedman, disclose his direct financial support of those he's writing about? He's not getting money out of it. He's giving the money. And my answer is, hell yeah. Are you kidding me? Of course he should. And how difficult is it to do that? You put in a line, half a line. The Conservation International, which uh, my family foundation supports through the Ann and Thomas L. Friedman Family Foundation. And they give a lot of money also to nonprofits involved in education, uh, women's health care, other causes, all told. I mean, we're talking serious bucks here. The Friedmans have, de have donated just shy of $28 million to these various groups. Now, uh, the Washington Post calls the New York Times and the spokeswoman there, Daniel Rhodes Haas, says, look, uh, our policy is, there's nothing wrong with this. Um, it's not like he's receiving money. Quote, giving money to an organization doesn't present the same issue. We see no ethical concern. But yeah, you know, he is, if, he's, if his family has given all these millions of dollars to this group in particular and others, and he is praising it and giving it this prominence, the, the valuable real estate of a New York Times op-ed page, and doesn't disclose it. First of all, why isn't he disclosing it? There have been a couple of instances where he has disclosed uh, something involving his wife's job or that she served on the board or, uh, of some organization he's writing about. But you're giving all this money and you're holding that back from readers because you're helping it be successful. And then if it's successful, it reflects well on you because you're giving all this money. How difficult is it? But Tom Friedman wouldn't offer any comment to Paul Fari of the Washington Post. And I think that's a mistake. And I say that with, as I said, a lot of respect for Tom Friedman. He should come out. And if he doesn't see anything wrong with this, he sh he's a journalist. He asks people questions all day long. He should say, he should submit to the questioning and say, here's why I think it's fine. Here's why I didn't see fit to mention it. Maybe I'm rethinking it. Maybe I'm not. He shouldn't hide behind the Times PR department. And so there, I think, and it was done in a very fair way. It wasn't a gotcha. It wasn't, hey, it was just like, hey, he didn't disclose this. Disclosure can be so important in journalism. And yet, and this is often true with op-ed writers, guest writers, giving, uh, you know, writing a piece, sometimes they're professors or academic experts for the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, USA Today, you name it. And then they don't bother to disclose, oh, they're, you know, they're on the board of this or... Uh, they receive royalty payments from that, and then inevitably the paper has to run a correction because somebody blows the whistle on them. This is not that situation. This is actually Tom Generous uh, Friedman being a very generous human being, but hold, withholding that information from readers, and I think that's wrong. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. 
All right, this just in. This is getting to be like a couple that's heading for divorce. It's really a bad relationship. The two Joes, Joe Biden, Joe Manchin. Uh, So I just saw this squib. It's kind of hard to uh, piece it together. But President Biden said today that he was talking about who said what to whom on the whole, you know, demise of or at least temporary demise of Build Back Better. He said that Joe Manchin was speaking to a liberal caucus in the House and said, Joe Biden didn't mislead you. I misled you. Well, that seems like a new sort of punch in the eye, right? So then the White House has now put out a statement. The president wanted to clarify that Senator Manchin does not mischaracterize himself as having been misleading. So the first part is true. Uh, Manchin has said uh, it was the White House staff, he felt, was screwing around with him in the debate over in the, in the negotiations over the bill and not Biden personally. But Biden comes out and says that Manchin had said, well, I misled you. But he didn't say that. And now the White House acknowledges that he didn't say that. Uh, that's not a good look. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Mitch McConnell, in an interview with The New York Times, says, you know what? Joe just doesn't look all that comfortable in the Democratic Party. We would be happy. We would be honored to have him on our team. Now, look, uh, this always goes on when there's a member who uh, looks like he might be a catch for the other side. The Democrats famously did this back in the first uh, year and a half of President Bush's term when a congressman named Jim Jeffords switch from Republican to Democrat, and that gave the Democrats control of the Senate. So McConnell may be very sincere in saying, oh, I like Joe Manchin so much, and he's a better fit with the GOP. But the day, if that happened, and this always struck me as unfair, it seems to me you should have to run again as a member of the other party. But if Manchin were to decide to throw in his lot with the GOP, and I don't see any evidence of that, suddenly Mitch McConnell would become majority leader. So naturally, he thinks it's a great idea. A little bit of January 6th news. Um, This is kind of surreal. You know, we already have Mark Meadows being cited for criminal contempt, and he's a former member of Congress. It was his ex-House colleagues voting uh, to go after him on the noncompliance with the subpoena, uh, even though he's now, of course, much better known as Donald Trump's former chief of staff. Now we have Congressman Scott Perry, a Pennsylvania Republican, saying yesterday that he is refusing to comply with the House panel investigating the Capitol riot. He's a sitting member of Congress. So now this is a battle between the Democratic-controlled House and Congressman Perry, the first sitting member who's been summoned by the panel. He put out a bunch of tweets saying, oh, this panel is illegitimate and not duly constituted under the rules of the U.S. House. He says he's not going to go along with this request. So As the committee tells it, Perry is not only a a Republican congressman who denies the legitimacy of the Biden presidency, but that he had an important role in installing at the Justice Department a guy named Jeffrey Clark, who was actively trying, at least the evidence indicates, to bolster Trump's claims of widespread election fraud. So um, Benny Thompson writes uh, Congressman Perry a letter and says that we also have evidence that in the lead up to the riot, you use the encrypted Signal app to communicate with Trump's former chief of staff, that would be Meadows, about Clark. Uh, Clark has already told the committee that he'll plead the fifth. So now you have a battle with a guy who was elected by the voters in his district in Pennsylvania, and he is in a knockdown drag out or soon to be. Uh, with the January 6th committee. And finally, 
I find this fascinating. New survey out by the Washington Post about uh, views of big tech companies. Remember, it wasn't that many years ago. Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and all these guys were considered folk heroes. They had the hot, cool Silicon Valley companies that were making zillions of dollars and everybody was using this stuff. Okay, so now, according to this new Washington Post poll, 72% of those who use the Internet, which I guess is like almost everybody in the country except for a few people who still use tin cans to communicate, say they trust Facebook not much or not at all when it comes to responsibly handling their personal information uh, when they go online. About 60% distrust TikTok. About 60% distrust Instagram, owned, of course, by Facebook. And slight majorities uh, distrust WhatsApp and YouTube. Now, Google, Apple, and Microsoft are getting kind of mixed marks on the trust question. Amazon's slightly positive, 53% trust Amazon at least a good amount. So that's a good finding for Jeff Bezos, who, yes, owns the Washington Post, but I don't have any reason to think that this was rigged. And by the way, 53% is not that great. Anyway, okay, uh, some other numbers here that jump out at me. Uh, only 10% say Facebook has had a positive impact on society. 56% say negative impact. 33% say neither positive nor negative. Only 10%. I mean, Facebook is this great global force. Only one out of 10 people think it has a positive impact on society. That is a devastating uh, verdict from this poll. Even among people who use Facebook every day, more than three times as many say negative impact as opposed to positive impact. Now, there's another finding here that's kind of made up, as far as we know. About 7 in 10 Americans in this poll say they think their phone or other devices are listening in on them in ways they did not agree to. Now, of course, you know, what comes out about mishandling of personal data and the danger to kids and the spread of misinformation, those are really important. Secretly activating a microphone maybe then seems more plausible, but I have to stress there's no evidence of that. But the fact that an overwhelming majority of the American public agrees with that, at least according to the survey, is really something. Now, uh, these places make so much money. I'm just looking at this story. Google earned $147 billion in revenue from advertising uh, last year, 80% of the total. Facebook, $84 billion in revenue from advertising, 98% of its total. So about 8 in 10 Internet users say tech companies don't provide enough control over how their information is used and tracked. Oh, I totally agree with that. And uh, more than 80% say they see targeted ads at least somewhat often. And among those who see them, 82% say they are annoying and 74% they're invasive. I just find them creepy. I mean, at times it's good, I guess, because it's sending me ads on things I might be interested in. But then as I've said, you know, I go out and buy a coat, and then I get bombarded with ads. How many coats am I going to buy? Stop sending me these friggin' ads. Uh, apparently, I'm not alone in my annoyance, or worse, uh, toward this target of advertising, which does, of course, provide the financial engine for these companies to make a whole lot of money. Well, we hope you will subscribe, or at least listen every day. Apple iTunes is a good place to get this, or you can get it on your Amazon device. Back here tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. 
everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.